You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, in the wake of the first round of the French presidential election, I talked to Paris correspondent Lara Marlowe and our foreign affairs correspondent Rune McCormack about the implications for French and European politics of the apparent halt put to Marine Le Pen's onward march, or is it? And following the latest lone wolf terror attack on the Champs-Élysées in Paris last week, I talked to academic Paul Gill about the phenomenon. Should we be looking on the attacks less as a manifestation of the war between Islamism and the West, and more as the expression of disturbed loners driven as much by personal motives as by ideology? And what does that mean? for how we fight it. First to Paris, I'm Lara Marlowe, and I'm joined in studio by Ruin McCormick. Lara, what does the presidential first round on Sunday tell us about the mood and the engagement of French voters, both in terms of turnout and the geographical distribution of, of the vote? Do we have actually two, three, or maybe even four Frances emerging? Exactly. You can argue about the number, but certainly at least two. Uh, and they've been described as happy France, which voted Macron, and unhappy France, which voted for Marine Le Pen, uh, la France d'en bas, la France d'en haut, upper France and lower France. Uh, someone compared it this morning to uh, one of those um, big cardboard boxes that the moving companies use that say uh, up, you know, with an arrow and down with an arrow and then fragile across the box. And I think that's a pretty good description of, of France at the moment. Um, basically, the northeast voted massively for Marine Le Pen. That's where she got her highest score in the Laine department in Picardy, which is the poorest department in mainland France. The south uh, also voted for Marine Le Pen and that, that sort of... Uh, FN banned across the Côte d'Azur, I mean, going from basically from uh, the Spanish border all the way over to the Italian border, most of the coast was voted um, in a majority for Marine Le Pen. And the West, the Southwest and, and Brittany, all of the West voted for Macron. The cities voted for Macron and the countryside voted for Le Pen. I think that gives you a pretty good idea. It's also been described as the difference between open France, open France being Macron's France, and closed France uh, being Le Pen's France, which wants to build a high wall around it and keep all those awful foreigners out. Um, so that's, that's about the division. Um, I don't think it is a done deal. I think that the very high probability is that Emmanuel Macron will become president of France on May 7th. But he's been criticized quite extensively um, yesterday and today for having celebrated his victory too soon. Uh, he actually had a, a big party at La Rotonde, um, popular brasserie in Montparnasse. And this, was, this is being compared to, for example, what Sarkozy did after he won the second round in 2007 when he went to Fouquet's, which is more expensive than La Rotonde. But anyway, it's not, he's not being criticized so much for the um, expensiveness or the, the luxury of the party as for just having acted as if he had already won. Uh, and there are still several things that have to be played out. Probably the most important will be the televised debate on the 3rd of May, Wednesday the 3rd of May, Le Pen against Macron. We've never seen them face-to-face, -face, just the two of them fighting it out. Uh, so that will be a very important moment. Um, there are other issues as well. I mean, for example, if there was another terrorist attack, 
Could that help Marine Le Pen? It didn't seem to help her in the first round uh, that a policeman was murdered on the Champs-Élysées on Thursday night. Uh, but she's been banging the drum all through the campaign against uh, Islam, immigration, terrorism. And it, it might, that could have an effect. And another very, very important factor is how the more than 50% of, of people who did not vote for Macron or for Marine Le Pen in the first round will vote in the second round. Um, the polls indicate that about a third of François Fillon's voters will vote for Marine Le Pen. His party, Les Républicains, the Conservatives, uh, have refused to give a really clear instruction to their voters. They say that they're telling them they must um, block the road for Marine Le Pen, but they haven't said vote Macron. So that's uh, taken to mean that they should either vote blank uh, or vote for Macron. But if they, if they vote blank, it would actually help. It, would, it could really help Marine Le Pen. So that's, that's one uncertainty. Another uncertainty is the voters um, nearly, um, I guess it was about 19%, who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, 99.5% who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, he has not given any instructions either. He was very angry on Sunday night, very, made a very bitter speech, and he said he's going to let the militants of his movement, La France Insoumise, he's going to let them decide. And they're all they're doing some Internet survey about how they think they should vote. Uh, but his voters actually, even though they're extreme left, have a lot in common with Marine Le Pen's voters on the, uh, on the extreme right. So that's another uncertainty. And um, I think she'll probably do slightly better than we expect. I mean, the polls, there were two polls after the first round. One showed she would get 36%, another showing she would get 38%. Um, sorry to keep quoting the polls all the time, but in the French election, they got it right uh, down almost down to the decimal point. The gap in the polls is is of the order of of twenty uh, percent at the moment, and, and more than twenty percent. Yeah, and, and there's no historical precedent for a, a candidate closing that sort of a gap in the second in the second round. No, no, there's not. Now, tell tell us, is the do you perceive yet? a shift in the way they're campaigning. I, we've seen Marine Le Pen re resigning from her position in the National Front um, uh, to, to cast herself as a candidate of all of the country, um, mm -hmm. though I, I see her father is out today uh, complaining that her campaign isn't sufficiently robust. Uh, mm. Is Macron shifting his ground too, or, or will he fight on, on largely the same ground? He actually has... Not campaign, didn't really campaign yesterday, and he's doing. A, he's going on television tonight, and I think he's going to a hospital this afternoon. But there's no indication of Macron shifting. I mean, Le Pen did change her tactics in the last days before the first round. Um, she had wanted to appear to be sort of nice and cuddly in, in the early um, part of the campaign. She had the slogan, La France apaisée, um, which means France be calmed. And, she, for example, she did a, uh, a big interview with, uh, I think it was Elle magazine, one of the, the women's magazines, and talked about motherhood. And she, she, she knows that she makes people feel anxious. And she, she wanted to soften that image. And then the last week of the campaign, suddenly she was just out there venomous and, and virulent. And, and it was all about 
uh, immigrants, Islam, and terrorism, and all about how these things are, are, are ruining, are destroying France, and Europe also destroying France. But it became a much nastier kind of, of rhetoric, much harder. And all signs are that she's going to continue that through the, the second round. And in fact, that's what Le Pen was saying this morning, that he, he thinks she should have been on that kind of line from the beginning. So maybe she's even taking um, advice from her old father. Well, Ruin, there's been a lot of international reaction, mostly uh, audible sighs of relief. Uh, and the EU and its politics have been very much centre stage in, in, in the campaign. Um, but there seems to be some confusion, for example, in, in, in Britain about whether Macron's europhilia is good or bad for them in the, in the Brexit negotiations. I think that's true. I think the reaction has been one of undisguised glee and relief uh, that uh, Emmanuel Macron emerged uh, in first place and that he's going to be in the runoff. I think a lot of Europeans feel that that's probably or possibly the best outcome because it offers him his surest route to victory, notwithstanding the fact that you know not a single vote has been cast. And I would agree with Lara that it's still to play for and that Macron really needs people to turn out. He needs people who voted for Mélenchon. He needs people who voted for François Fillon to turn out. But that said, the reaction has been one of relief. Um, the European Commission, the European institutions normally don't um, say a word until an election, a national election is over. Those sorts of diplomatic niceties went out the window. You had statements from uh, the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, Michel Barnier, who's going to lead the Brexit negotiations for the EU27, uh, tweeted his... his, um, his you know, happiness at, at the outcome. It was framed very much uh, also by Federica Mogherini, the foreign affairs chief of the EU, as um, a victory for openness, for pro-European policies, for for, for free trade. Um, all of that said, I think you're right that in many countries, people are unsure as to how um, how Macron, if presuming he is elected on May 7th, how he will rule, how he will affect the dynamics, say, of the Brexit negotiations. Um, you know, if you look at the reaction in Britain, some would argue that it's going to make it a tougher situation for London because it may be easier to get a common position among the EU27, um, that he's a convinced European, that he's not going to make it, certainly not going to make it any easier for, for um, the British. You know, on the other hand, he is uh, an economic liberal. You know, he he understands, I think, the British position in a way that many other French politicians might not. Um, we saw today that his vote in the UK was very, very high, as it was in Ireland as well. Um, if you look at the Dublin reaction, and Kenny the Taoiseach put out a tweet pretty early after the uh, the result was confirmed, or at least the preliminary result came out, he spoke to Emmanuel Macron by phone. Irish officials are encouraged because a lot of them have a good relationship with Macron. They know him from his time as an economic advisor at the Elysee, and they feel he's going to be sympathetic or relatively sympathetic on corporate tax. He wants to make his own cut to France's company tax rate, for example. So I think you know people in general across the European Union and the mainstream are pleased, but there are some unanswered questions or un certain unknowns about how he might uh, approach Brexit and other issues. Concerning Brexit, I mean, Marine Le Pen is pro-Brexit. She applauds Brexit. She thought it was great. And, and one of her arguments about why France should leave Europe, which I think is in many ways a specious argument, but she keeps saying, look, the, the British left and their economy has never done better. They're doing, they're doing fine. And, and if we leave, we'll, be, we'll do very well, too. So I think if, 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 
in, you know, heaven forbid, you know, if there was, if the unthinkable happened and she was elected on May 7th, uh, I think it would be very much in her interest to give Britain the easiest ride possible. I think that that would actually play into the hands of, of the British government. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that we mustn't forget that Emmanuel Macron only defeated her by, by less than three percentage points. Um, it's, it's not as if the, the, the landslide victory has already happened. It probably will happen on May 7th, but it hasn't happened yet. Rune, it's just, I, I wanted to, to stay on the, if you like, on the international stage. The election is a turning point for French politics, uh, particularly in, in terms of the eclipse of the establishment parties, particularly the traditional voice of social democracy. But that's very much a, a European-wide, indeed you could argue, world uh, phenomenon at the moment. And it also could be seen as a high watermark for uh, populist nationalism in terms of, of uh, European trends, particularly after the Dutch election. Yeah, Benoit Hamon, the Socialist Party candidate, got just over 6% of the vote. I mean, it's a remarkable, remarkably low uh, score when you consider the Socialist Party. François Mitterrand, I think, in 1988, got 44-45% of the first-round vote. You know, they've, they've, it's, a, it's, a, it's a historic, unprecedented decline in the vote. Now, you could argue that there are very particular reasons for that in this election, given that uh, Amon was squeezed on one side by Macron. Uh, he was squeezed on the other side by uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who made a late surge and had a very good campaign. But clearly, it's part of a, uh, a wider trend. We've seen this. I mean, 20 years ago, almost every country in Western Europe was run by social democrats. And there are very few countries today that are run, run by social democrats. We saw PASOK in Greece um, collapse during the economic crisis. Its vote went from 45, 46% to 4 or 5%. Um, you know, in elections in the past two years, we've seen social democrats either lose power or have some of their worst scores in, in the post-war era. We're thinking of, you know, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, Spain, Britain, um, you know, the, and, and and indeed Ireland. The, the list the list goes on, um, and you know there are all sorts of reasons for this. We could attribute it partly to the financial crisis, to the austerity policies that, for many voters, made social democratic voters seem indistinguishable from the from the centre right. Um, but you know, it, it, it's it's a clear trend. Now, at the same time, you could argue that um, if this election, so far at least, um, should have any effect on social democrats, on mainstream centrist politicians looking at it, it should dispel some of the fatalism that they have felt. So if you look at, you know, yes, we have the rise of English nationalism. Yes, we have uh, right-wing populists in government in, in Poland, in Hungary. But if you look at the core of the European Union, um, right-wing nationalists, populists have underperformed in the last six months in elections in the Netherlands, uh, in elections for the presidency in Austria. Um, Angela Merkel, of course, is looking good for re-election in September. And now you have Emmanuel Macron, who is you know, the definition of the centrist pro-European, pro-free trade candidate on the cusp of victory in France. So I think you know, the, the, the fight is still on. Um, and I think a lot of centrists will look at this outcome, notwithstanding the fact that we're only halfway through the election, and say, you know, the argument is there to be made, certainly if you've got a good enough candidate. Now, Larry, finally, I just wanted to ask you about the National Assembly elections. Uh, can you explain uh, the extent to which a French president can rule without the National Assembly on his side? And what are the prospects for a, a supposing it's Macron, getting a, a substantial block of seats that would support him in the, in the National Assembly in the elections in June? I think the chances of him getting a, getting a substantial block of 
seats is, are actually quite good. Uh, he is fielding candidates in all, one, all 577 uh, districts, uh, constituencies, and he's, half of his candidates will be non-politicians, half of them will be women. This is a very popular move. I've talked to a lot of people around me, and, and they all think it's a, it's a terrific idea. Um, Macron's line all along has been that the, if the French are intelligent enough to elect him, they'll be intelligent enough to give him a majority so that he can govern. Um, the, we also saw something yesterday. The Socialist Party um, called on all of its members to vote for Macron. And all, basically, almost all of the socialist cabinet ministers have also come out in support for Macron. So that he's, in a way, sort of subsuming um, the Socialist Party, as it were, and they're, they're kind of going more or less en masse to en marche, to his movement. So, you know, if he gets the Socialists, remember, had a majority in the outgoing assembly. So if he gets his en marche candidates and the, most of the Socialist candidates, he'll be doing pretty well. There's also a part of um, Les Républicains, a part of the Conservative Party, which is Macron compatible. Um, the ones who wanted Alain Juppé uh, to be the candidate, and indeed had Juppé been the candidate, he might be facing Marine Le Pen now. Uh, that part of the party likes Macron and could, could work with him, I think. So <clears throat> it's, not, it's not certain, but even if he doesn't get a majority or some kind of coalition in the National Assembly, uh, the French Constitution has a, an article of 49.3 uh, which was invoked by Hollande um, several times to pass legislation, the labor reform, which was very unpopular last year, and also the Macron, very aptly named uh, Macron laws, which deregulated coach traffic, for example, um, and Sunday trading. And so, you know, the last government didn't hesitate to use uh, 49.3, and it was a small campaign issue, uh, but Macron has said, I will not hesitate to uh, govern by decree if I have to. And if I can't get my reforms through the National Assembly by vote, I will impose them by decree. Uh, so I think it may not be quite as big a concern as it's, it's being made out to be by Macron's opposition. Another Erdogan? Hardly. <laughs> Hardly. OK, thank you very much, Lara and Ruin. When we come back, a look at the nature of lone wolf terrorism. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Paul Gill is an Irish academic at UCL London doing research on behavioural underpinnings of terrorism and terrorist attacks. He has studied what has been called the phenomenon of lone actor terrorism, what drives and motivates the so-called lone wolf homegrown terrorists who have played a major part in the wave of jihadist attacks against Western cities in Paris, Germany, Belgium, London and the US. Paul, talk to us a bit about your work. So we... Um started studying this lone actor terrorism phenomenon in 2011 and once we started um, scratching below the surface of why these individuals said why they did it so typically they would talk about an ideology usually once you scratch below that surface you'd find a number of kind of personal grievances and, and vulnerabilities and risk factors going on with those individuals 
many of our lone actor terrorists don't really have a great understanding of the ideology. They don't really know too much about the group, what the group stands for. And instead are kind of driven by personal grievances, which they help kind of wrap up in the wider ideology, which helps explain why they're in this bad situation in their life, but gives it a sort of a wider kind of political meaning behind it. In other words, their politics in some way have been intensified by their personal situ- circumstances and the, the politics then becomes an expression of a personal grievance. Yeah, so, I mean, the Islamic State message is perfect uh, in terms of helping get people over the line to engage in violence. You've got these kind of young, um, socially isolated Muslim men wondering why they're in this poor place in society despite many of them having great education and so on. And Islamic State's message is very simple. Of course you're there. You're Muslim and that's where the kind of West and Christians want to keep you. And here's a sort of black and white set of instructions to go and follow and be a part of something bigger and we'll help sort of celebrate you after your death. But they're older by and large than um, those you might typically think would be associated with violence in society. Yeah, so we've studied about close to 190 lone actors now and the average age in that sample is about 35, which is, um, you know, it's still young, but it's older than what you would typically find in um, groups um, engaged in political violence or terrorism. So, for example, we've studied groups like ETA, IRA, loyalist groups, and you find that most of their first-time offenders are in that 16 to 22-year age range. You know, groups typically like to recruit young men that are high-risk takers, high-sensation seekers, do things with their friends that they wouldn't do as individuals. So it's maybe a different set of motivators, which are group-based actors compared to your lone actors. But again, as what I was saying, I think that, that, that they're not actually recruited, many of them, by IS. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got, you've got a range of individuals, some of which are complete self-starters that maybe would have seen the message online, maybe looked at some of the operational uh, manuals about how to do different types of attacks and gone out with very little interaction with other radicals, right the way through to other individuals that were sort of, you know, given a specific plan, were given the bomb materials or whatever, and then kind of went through and engaged in the attack by themselves. Lone actor terrorists are significantly more likely to have a history, you say, of, of mental illness, of unfortunate personal life, maybe of domestic violence against uh, spouses. And I, I, I see you quoted as saying having a history of violence might help neutralise the natural barriers to, to committing violence. Uh, a Guardian writer said, Wives and girlfriends make good target practice. Is that is that oversimplifying? Uh, I think it was an oversimplification of what was probably a half an hour discussion at the time. <laughs> essentially, essentially, what I was trying to say was, in the absence of a group or co-conspirators, a lone actor is faced with a number of hurdles that group-based actors don't have, right? So people do things in groups that they wouldn't do in the absence of that group as individuals. So what kind of helps some lone actors get over the line and, and engage in violence is, well, one of the big hurdles they have to overcome is that sort of building a psychological propensity to engage in violence. So many of our lone actors have a long history of criminal violence, be it at home against other people, against the police, like in the case we just saw this week uh, where he had previously fired on police. So that kind of helps them because they're habituated. They've already kind of made that moral decision to um, go against kind of criminal law. Um, for other individuals, we see really high rates of uh, schizophrenia within our sample, which again, there's a kind of a heavy overlap with previous engagement in violence. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, when you're talking about mental health problems, that's just one of many kind of vulnerabilities and risk factors that our loan actors typically um, have when they become engaged with the ideology or the idea to engage in violence. So just as it might be simplistic to say that this is basically motivated by uh, Islam, it's also equally wrong, as she, as she tried to say, that, that the problem isn't Islam but or a perverted interpretation of Islam, but rather a perversion of frustrated masculinity. That's a similarly... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's never going to be one silver bullet explanation that is sort of uniform across the board or even within one individual. Take, take for example, the individual that shot up the... Um, the, the, the gay nightclub in Orlando last summer. I, I was getting calls from newspapers saying, is it because he was online radicalised? Another paper would call, is it because he's mentally ill? Another, is it because he was a wife beater? Is it because uh, he was actually gay? And probably it was all of them. And if you sat down and spoke with him today, he'd give you a different mixture of those motives than if you spoke with him next week and so on. Typically with our guys, there's m multiple motivations, both personal, ideological, societal reasons. And one of your, your findings, I, I understand, is that is that typically they tended to leak information to significant others, uh, whether it's spouses or, or, or friends. Yeah. And that, that actually, ahead of attacks, there was quite a lot of information actually out there. So one of the big things that sparked this piece of research in, in the first place was that we felt that in the UK and the United States, there was a number of big plots involving multiple people that were being detected and disrupted ahead of time. So we were interested in seeing, well, how well did those tools match onto what a lone actor typically does? And the big surprising finding for us was the degree to which other people generally knew something. In 60% of the cases, the lone actor had told friends, family, co-workers, typically in a week or two before the attack, this is what I'm going to do. On Tuesday, I'm going to blow up that place. So people are well aware of, of intent, maybe not capability. So it's about sort of getting those bystanders to come forward and, and tell information. In other cases, a similar percentage of people, um, kind of neighbours, spotted something, spotted, you know, bombs going off in the back garden and didn't call the police or uh, and things like that. So it's really soft pieces of intelligence that um, start the leads on these investigations with lone actors. There's been a sort of uh, conservative critique of the Muslim community uh, saying that basically they're, they're hiding the, these uh, people within them. They're not, they're not cooperating with the, with the police. That's not what you're saying. No, it's not what I'm saying at all. So <clears throat> that one there is kind of pinning the blame in a community-wide and that's just not true at all. And, and in many cases in the UK, leads have come from wider Muslim communities and imams about sort of concerns about an individual's vulnerability and, and their plans. So that's not what I'm saying at all. It's more of a case that individuals very, very close to the would-be perpetrator are aware because they're told about that specific piece of information. They're not co-conspirators, they're no co-plotter, but they're basically bystanders to what they've been told. Now, I'm sure most of us have kind of heard a friend or family member say something a bit idiotic uh, in the heat of the moment and thought, well, you know, we can explain that away, we don't need to do anything. I'm not trying to sort of put this as a community-wide problem at all because it's not, but it's basically that typically somebody knows something and that if a friend or family member comes forward to report concerns, don't just automatically put it in the bin and, and presume that real terrorists don't tell people. We had a case in, in the UK two years ago, Brust Holmes Iamani. He told his girlfriend one night, uh, I'm going to do a Lee Rigby, I'm going to chop a head off a soldier and put the picture on Instagram. And she luckily told the police who also saw what he was 
saying online and what he was searching for online and felt this is an individual who looks radicalized, looks like he's building capability, has certainly centered around a target. Let's go in and disrupt him and make an arrest. When they arrested him, he was in his driveway. He had a backpack on, an ISIS flag, a hammer and a long hunting knife in the backpack. And that purely came because the girlfriend thought this was highly concerning and reported it. But what what do you think that the, the the business of profiling such people means in terms of of being able to predict particular actors and and uh, being able to identify them in advance specifically? And are there are there policy implications for for uh, your work? Yeah, so I think shows like Criminal Minds have sort of uh, set an impossibly ridiculous high threshold for us to try and achieve through social science research. Profiling, prediction, it's going to be almost impossible. We're talking about a very low base rate phenomenon, you know, um, so it's very difficult, almost impossible to predict. But what we are having to do is uh, triage and case management. So MI5, for example, have been quoted in the media saying, we've got 3,000 people here in the UK that are at risk of radicalization, risk of an attack. So what they're looking for is the best sort of social science and, and structured professional judgments to say, we can't watch everybody all the time, but here are the 50 cases where we're going to push our resources. And I think through our type of analyses, which kind of help understand what inflates or decreases risk with a particular individual, I think that's where it's helpful is in management as opposed to prediction. And, and presumably also in terms of, of the message that goes out from the security community about the Islamic threat, that that, that has to be crafted in a, in a somewhat different way. So they face quite a challenge, right, because they can't purely put it out there as an Islamic threat, right, because then on the other side of the fence, what you're doing is radicalizing and inflaming tensions on the sort of extreme right side of the fence, which itself poses a, a real risk. We've seen several kind of big plots and, and, and fully conducted cases in the UK in the last number of years. And in the United States, right-wing extremists have actually killed more people since 9-11 than, than the jihadis. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult communication um, thing here. So I think... The best, the best way of approaching it is just by looking at it as a ideology blind, right? What we're looking here is, is that sort of public health, public safety, public security. And it doesn't really, like, I don't care if somebody comes into the Irish Times offices and says they're a jihadi or a right wing or a loyalist. I just care that they're in here shooting the place up, right? So that's kind of where some of the more sophisticated intelligence agencies are going with their communication concerns. It's about public safeguarding. And where do you see your own future research going? Um... So at the moment we are there's at the moment there's a lot of research around risk factors that are sort of overpromising what what they can actually do and there's a, a there's been the development of several risk assessment tools where people are trying to make money out of uh, intelligence services and police saying this is the perfect tool to predict and um, so we're about to start a two-year funded project with the Canadians which is actually going to test the validity of these tools and I don't hold out much hope for them to be honest. <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks to Lara Marlowe and Rune McCormack, to Paul Gill, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan, and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.